Welcome back to the Devin Kershaw Show. I'm Nat Hurst from Faster Skier, coming to you live from Canmore, where I had the privilege of witnessing two awesome World Cup races in person. Devin and I are here to break them down for you. We'll be back again tomorrow. Send Devin some love for staying up late to bang this episode out. It's tough living in Norway. Also, I really wanted to thank everyone who said hi and said nice stuff about the podcast out here in Canmore these past few days. It makes me feel like a minor celebrity around here, and uh, we really appreciate it. We'll be back in a minute. One fun wrinkle from today. I was recording in an office the race organizers lent us today. So toward the end of the podcast, you'll hear us say hello to Norbert Meyer, one of the lead organizers here who uh, walked in to the office very quietly, I might add, until I looped him into uh, the discussion with Devin. Uh, then you'll hear Dan Roycroft join us. Dan runs a timing company in Canmore and has quite a tale to tell if you stick around to the end of the episode. We'll be right back. This episode of the Devin Kershaw Show is brought to you by the Sovereign to Silver Star Ski Marathon, also known as S2S. This race in British Columbia sounds absolutely lit, and I really wish I could go. Having been to Silver Star one time, it is still stuck in my memory as a cross-country skiing paradise. The marathon is the weekend of April 6th. They actually have two days of racing, one in classic, one in skate. There's real cold, hard cash money dollars on the line, $6,000 in total. You can ski and stay at Silver Star. There's reliable late snow there, and they've got a sweet sounding silent auction for charity with flight packages, a stay at the Yukon Ski Lodge, Fisher skis, and other stuff too. Go check out this event. It sounds awesome. More information at SovereignToSilverStar.com. That's two as in the letter two, SovereignToSilverStar.com. Or you can email info at SovereignToSilverStar.com. Yes, that's what we like to see. Yeah, you want to describe what you're seeing right now? I'm describing. You're just getting right in the spirit. You're, you're becoming like more right as the seconds tick by. You got a cowboy hat on. Whoa, I'm whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm surprised you're not pulling out a tomahawk steak out of your like faster skier bubble jacket pocket and just eating it right from the bone. You're you know, you know, live in Berta, baby. You know what I am? So, so Devin is commenting, I'm wearing a cowboy hat that I just picked up from the desk here. But you know what I am going to be basically pulling out of my pocket and eating is this mother boy. No way. A nice chunk of Gruyere cheese. That probably goes for like 600 kroner here in Norway, maybe more, 800 kroner. So I had to pay for it. Over 100, well, it's still over 100 Canadian. Yeah. So that's uh, that's a nice little pickup. I, I, got, I, did, I did get some freebies, but it was freebies that were available to the general public. So I think it's okay. totally kosher. So I did, I also yeah. got- Ski uh, ties, I saw a Gruyere ski ties. That's-, that's yeah. And then there was what I also, I really, I leaned hard on the Gruyere tent. Oh yeah, really? Like, hey, there you go. We got like a little bit of like a cow stuffy here. I mean, you're, you're ready for Switzerland. Like get this guy to Switzerland right now. He's repping hard. Yeah, no doubt. Um, cool. Well, so, uh, we just, how did you, you just watch some races from like the dark oh, yeah. in the basement in Norway or were you oh, for sure. No, no, no. Yeah. We watched. I watched the races today in Camor and oh, I'm not going to lie. Like nostalgia hit pretty hard. 
What a place. I mean, I am the biggest Camor booster ever. I lived there for 16 years. I still think it's one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth. The courses were, they looked fantastic, but that's what Camor is like. Like, it's usually just rock hard, perfect conditions. Like, <laughs> sun shining, snow in the mountains, the Rundle Range behind you, and athletes just smashing up those big climbs. And in skating, I mean, it was probably one of my... Oof, I hated racing skate races in Camor. So when I saw Kruger, well, not to bury the lead here, but when I saw Kruger like do his big move there at the halfway mark of that men's race, I was kind of thankful that I'm fat out and dropping out here and in, in <laughs> here in Norway and not not a not a member of that field. But it is actually pretty trippy to watch a race. I mean, it's obviously Camor is not my hometown, but it it still even now that feels the most home for me. And I, I like, I know every millimeter of that thing, of that course, but not just that course of that whole town, the training, all the trails. And like, yeah, so it was really like, I really felt like I was uh, definitely like an old man, an old man in his rocking chair, closing his eyes and, and uh, reminiscing about the good old days. But it was uh, some fantastic racing. And I'm glad to see that they pulled it off in, in such a, in such a great way. I mean, we'll get into it. I, I have a lot of questions for you because I mean, yeah. I'll just start right away. I'll start with my first question, even though I know the answer, but it's great to hear from you who's on the ground. Why the hell was I watching two 15K skate mass starts? Because at no point of this was that on the schedule. And I, I know why not, but I'd like you to explain it since you're on the ground. What 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 happened there? Yeah, no, this was, I, I thought this was actually a great subplot. So I, I'm, I am not going to out my source here but uh i think it was wednesday evening or afternoon someone uh mentioned like keep an eye out for a format change uh because there are some missing timing equipment and i started asking around and fist was like we have nothing to say but who told you this and i was like okay and then an hour later there was an announcement format is no longer 10k individual start 15k mass start and i was like okay like what's the story and they said you know because of delays with timing equipment and i kind of gathered a little bit more over the course of the next 12 hours going into the next morning and there were i basically picked up like this they basically were like so the, the timing equipment swiss timing is this like you know they're the exxon of timing and they they do timing for all the world cup races and um so they had their equipment uh flying to canmore uh or Cal calgary via frankfurt i guess where there is a massive lufthansa strike going on and it got stuck and we're apparently we're talking 18 pallets 5000 pounds of timing equipment and uh it, i think the real question here that someone pointed out is like why are they waiting until like three days before the World Cup to like send this stuff over here? That seems like a dropped ball on the part of Fis and on the part of uh, Swiss timing. I, I don't know enough about the details to know who is to blame. But basically, they were like, yeah, we don't have the stuff we need to do an individual start because, you know, they've got the wand. There's a window you can start in. Everything has to be corrected for. And apparently there was this like essential piece of hardware that they did not have that they needed, even though. What ended up happening was you have a homegrown timing company, Zone 4, who is which is run by former Olympic cross-country ski racer Dan Roycroft, who I'm sure is a contemporary, and you could probably tell us lots of stories about him. They basically call those guys in, and they're like, so, guys, how do you feel about timing a World Cup in three days? And they're like, all right. And there's like a huge amount. Of, I talked to Dan yesterday, and it sounded like there was just a huge amount of like technical work that goes into, particularly because 
They need to connect the timing system to Swiss timings graphics system so that they're getting all the images on TV. And that just like sounded like it was a heroic effort. We could actually probably call those guys in to the podcast to hear a little bit more about it. Maybe I'll text them and we can see if we can get them at the end. But uh, yeah, so in the end, mass start instead of an individual start. It was interesting. I mean, you probably have some thoughts about this. Like mass start 10k obviously isn't really fair for the folks at the back of the field because you just don't have an opportunity to get to the front before the end of the race 15k is better and i think especially here like there are not a lot of people who are going to say yeah i didn't have a fair shot at like going with kruger in the men's race or something right but it's still i mean it was just like a last minute thing i was bummed personally not to be able to see an individual start race like it's fun um so yeah um that's my answer to that question. No, I'm glad you, um, that was a wonderful answer. And you, of course, like Dan's a friend of mine and it's amazing. It's just like, it's, it's it on the one side, it's like, it's like the Mickey mouse club at the highest degree because there hasn't been world cups in a couple of weeks. Um, so I totally agree with you that they should have sent the, sent the timing a little earlier. Uh, on the other side, I, Dan is just such a salt of the earth guy, and it does not surprise me whatsoever, and that he that he pulled through for this. And it's incredible to have a, a Camor company in Zone Four um, on that stage. And uh, I, yeah, I'm not going to out my sources either. But I mean, it's been it, it was to say it was a heroic effort is is an understatement, actually. So um, from a viewer at home in in Norway in Europe here. Uh, you know, I, I didn't miss a beat. Like it looked great. Things looked great. The timing was exactly like any other world cup that I've seen. So that was, that was cool to see. I, I do want to stop a little bit, like put a, like a, on the, making it the 15 K and this is where like, I just kind of pull my hair out. It's, it's like, we're doing common distances. We've retired the 15 K individual start, which is a race that was like in international skiing since the 1920s like since the dawn of international cross-country skiing on the men's side, at least, and, and the women, and the women. It was, it was the kind of like the, 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 the middle long distance race for the women, the whole time. And, like, and then they're like, okay, hey, we're trashing 15Ks. It's garbage. It's only 10s, 20s, and 50s for, for the distance racing. And then in a scramble, they go like, we're going to do a 15K mass start? Like, why didn't we just do a 20K mass start? literally it's 12 more minutes of racing it's not that big a lift here guys and i just feel like it's confusing to viewers like this is this is just a this is confusing but anyway i love the races well and can you can you can you like imagine if like the nhl was like yeah we're gonna go play some okay. games in europe and then they get there and they're like yeah and also also, because of uh, some issues with the TV broadcast, we're going to play a fourth period or like, you know, it's like a first to three. <laughs> like, I feel like that doesn't happen in real. Yeah, exactly. Like, th th that's exactly where my point. That's where I'm going with this, even though our inboxes are just filled with hate mail of Kershaw can't land the plane. So I'm glad you jumped in here. Like, it's it's uh, it's outrageous. But that said. I thought both races were wonderful to watch and they were actually kind of wonderful to watch in two different ways. And let's start with the women race. I wanted to get your perspective since you're on the ground, but like, you know, Camor is a, is a punishing course and it's at middle altitude. And also a lot of these euros have just flown in, right? Like they've flown into middle altitude. They're, they're not, a, they're not acclimatized perfectly 
to the, the altitude, which is about 1400 meters. And then you climb up from there. You kind of go up towards like just under 1600 meters on the course, on the race course. We're talking and, about 5,000, 4,500 feet. Yeah, per, yeah exactly. Yeah, 4,500, 4,500, 5,000 feet. And, and people are, a lot of people coming from sea level and like, and, and traveling like eight time zones over the Atlantic and then over almost an entire continent on planet Earth to get here. And um, I was really expecting that the women's race was going to shatter. And and it looked at times that it was heading that direction, especially early. You know, you had the usual suspects up at the front. You had like the Ebba Andersons, you had the Frieda Carlsons, you had the Diggins on the front early. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Like, this is just going to shatter into like a million little pieces. And you're going to have small groups of two, three athletes that are just going to, yeah, like head down, smash, like gun to tape, annihilate to the finish line. And that is not what happened. And and it kind of got whittled down and whittled down and the, the, the pack got like more whittled down. And then there was like just interesting names in there that were doing the whittling, but also that were, that were there, like Dolce of France, um, Claudel, that got an amazing podium. Um, we'll come back to that. But and Sophia Lockley, I mean, they were doing like, like Claudel was a tactical masterclass till the end, but she had no, she had no chance. She, it was the best she could have done. Um, but that said, like, it was interesting to see like a Frida Carlson, not able to stay with the pace. It was interesting to see a lot of other like kind of bigger name. I mean, I wouldn't have expected Lin Svon to be, to be great on this course. I wouldn't have expected like a Johanna Sundling to be like fantastically great on this, this steep punishing course. But that said, there was some names that, Especially, I guess Frida Carlson was the big one, but like, still, there was Rosie. Rosie, Rosie struggled as well, and Rosie's usually so so good at altitude and so good in these types of conditions. And um, so, I found that it was it was exciting, but it was not at all what I expected for this race. Are, I don't you know, know what, what did you think being there? So, <clears throat> yeah, it, a. I I would I was getting these like snapshots right because actually when you watch a race I could not get like a CBC feed going on my phone so I was just sort of seeing like ten people in the or fifteen people in the lead pack you know twelve ten one observation that I think I would make that I think applies to your observations about the women's race and the men's race also um, you looked at the athletes that were successful today and it basically is like the athletes that like fly up the tour to ski, like these super high capacity athletes, you know, so, so Kruger and Vermeulen and Claudel and La, Jules Lapierre, the tiny French guy, um, Laukley really sort of pressing the pace in, in the women's race. And like some of these like heavy hitter sprinter types, like were not, in the mix in the same way that they usually were. I mean, I, I thought, I agree. I thought the women's race was, I mean, it was, it was scintillating and I, it was really fun. I mean, Laukley looked so good today and just seeing her really, she was not able to sort of dictate all the way up to the end where she gets on the podium, but she really was clearly fit enough that she was able to, try to make things happen and like you know to be able to even try uh like she did on that last lap really to try to break up the group before she was going to get smoked on the last downhill and in a sprint finish like you have to be in really effing good shape so oh yeah um, no she was i totally agree she was in amazing shape but i think you know eighth place is fantastic too you also we also have to just realize like where laukley's career is right now she's young 
And she doesn't have a whole lot of World Cup top tens outside of like the final climb. I know I we I know we've covered that. Like she won the final climb in the Tour de Ski, but that's like that is such a anomaly of a race. And she was skiing with a lot of boys and and also like like she belonged and, and trying to make it happen. I think I think for me, like it was kind of like a tail. I'm not going to say that luckily had like bad tactics because she, she didn't have bad tactics. She's finished top 10. This is some of the best races she ever had in her career. But that said, had she been a little more patient, a little more like Claudel and just waited till like the last two K of this thing to, to do, to go or like cover moves like Claudel did. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like maybe not podium, but she would have been, in that like Slin, Dolce, Wang kind of group. Uh, I believe that. I really do. That said, someone who had the absolute best tactics, and it's easy to have great tactics when it's your 10th World Cup podium of the season. Like Jesse Diggins was like, you, you, and you saw it in her body language. You saw it how she was skiing. Smiling. Um, smi- yeah, but this is, and she's great at altitude. That's why I was actually quite shocked with Rosie because Rosie is also usually very, very good at altitude and and she was not skiing well today again and and just looking super heavy with her technique and not hitting her angles well uh she was you know like in cycling people would say she was pedaling squares and you can't say that in cross-country skiing because we don't have pedals under our feet but but her her tempo was really labored heavy she was just skiing super super heavy same with actually anna shastikolvo who is who is the darling of last season really like just really blasting onto the scene last season and finally getting her just desserts since she'd been toiling on the Scandinavian cup for a lot of, uh, for almost a decade. And, and today too, I mean, Anna Shirsty looked, Anna Shirsty and Rosie really stuck out to me. It's like skiing super heavy, poor tech, poor technique in the last 5k, but poor technique because they were shattered, not poor technique because they're just not skiing well. Like they were so visibly shattered. Whereas Jesse was it was a tactical masterclass, honestly. When she was at the front, it wasn't costing her anything, as you as you mentioned, smiling, like totally relaxed, low shoulders, hitting her angles well. And then and then when Claudel had the great tactics to to secure that podium by waiting a little bit and then trying to use her advantage with a little longer drag. And yeah, she led down the hill. And if you want to win in Camor, that's a horrible tactic. But she's also seeing how this race is playing out and she's ski- seeing how Diggins is. And, and if she didn't do that for sure, a Heidi Wang or like an Astrid or Schlind, who is a better sprinter are going to blow the doors off Clodell. So she, she did do what she needed to do to secure a podium. But Jesse Diggins was just like so phenomenal. And like I said, I know I just said it, but like 10th world cup podium, there has been 16, this was the 16th world cup podium for the, for the um, American women this season. I mean, 10 of them are, are Jesse, but still, like this bonkers. is, this is, this is bonkers. This really truly is bonkers. And, uh, I was, I, I, I really liked, I really liked the, uh, the women's race. It was totally unexpected. And before we move on, I mean, I will say other than surprises for me is like Rosie being bad, but another tough one is like, I mean, I don't want to rain on the hometowns parade and stuff, but, but you know, the Canadian women and the men, this was a crisis home event for, the Canadian national team. And these are seniors. And I know a lot of these athletes are, are uh, not used to racing on the world cup and this kind of, they're getting their chance. And that's, that's great and wonderful. But when you have like Catherine Stewart Jones, wasn't able to start and she's kind of our strongest card on the women's side of things. 
And, and that's just tough. It's just tough for a program that, that um, we don't do like the world juniors under 23 uh, podcasts or anything, but I, Nat and I are like follow it super closely. And like Canada's had a phenomenal under 23s on the women's side winning the sprint in Planitza with Sonia Schmidt. And then Liliane Gagnon has been eighth and fifth, like fantastic at under 23s. But on the World Cup side of things, it, it, this was a dark day for the Canadian women. So hopefully they can turn it around. I, I just wanted to add one more thing about Jesse Diggins, which was uh, you are, uh, I, I'm lightly ribbing you for not giving her credit. She had the least demonstrative finish, I think, uh, podium finish in Jesse Diggins history. She finished like with a smile, standing on her skis straight up it was it was uh i don't think i I, i've ever seen that before and she was like yeah i guess i just skied the race super tactically i mean i I, and i do really want to say that too i think um she talked a lot to us in the mix zone today about sort of really trying to meter and and measure her energy and her effort today knowing that like she's got four four races in five days in canmore followed by this like potentially career crowning moment in in minneapolis and like a lot ahead of her and and we go back to tour to ski and those relays after tour to ski where she and rosie decided not to race and i think you know took some legitimate flack from some of some fans out there and i just jesse talked a lot about how one thing that's been really hard for her and one thing that she's really kind of tried to do though in the lead up to Minneapolis is like the demands on her are really intense and she's been saying no a lot even though that's like not a thing that's easy to do and I I actually just want to sort of put that out there that I I think you know you're seeing an athlete in Jesse Diggins that has learned and really integrated the lessons of like whatever 12 13 14 years on the world cup and like knows herself and knows her limits and knows exactly what she needs to do. Whereas like, you know, someone skiing like Mika Vermulen today or Sophia Laukley will get to, to Mika, but like those guys and, and more power to them. Like they're, they're great skiers. They're going to be great skiers, but it's the difference between like knowing your strengths and your weaknesses and being able to just sort of perfectly and obviously having like, the best fitness in the world like that helps too but i think you know just really i think impressive performance and everything kind of around it from jesse today so i don't yeah do you want to is it time to go to the men yeah let's go to the men i i I just gonna echo what you said i'm uh, i'm not gonna spend much time on it but i i'm so wildly impressed with jesse and it didn't it wasn't lost on me how she finished that thing but i if I was going to put, if I was able to like bet money, will Jesse like explode over the finish line and like just kind of roll around like she just got shot with a shotgun at close range? I'm like, not today. I mean, this was, this was a tactical, that's what I said. Like she was a tactical masterclass. She looked great. She was obviously enjoying it. And I just don't think it cost her pretty much anything today. It, she was, she's had a lot of great races in her career and this is not one of her best races of her career, not even close, but, but she was well within herself and it just shows the level that she's at. She's no question the best female skier in the world this season. And, and the improvements that she's made in this season are, 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 are astounding. It, it's astounding. So all the power to Diggins. And like I said, wonderful race on the women's side, looking forward to the rest of the races in Camor and uh, 
it was surprising to me. And it sounds like it was surprising to you that it played out the way it did. So that was fun. This episode of the Devin Kershaw Show is brought to you by the Craftsbury Outdoor Center. I've spent a bunch of time racing and training at Craftsbury, which is in northern Vermont, and it really is the perfect place in the Northeast to unplug and get some good focused time skiing in the woods, particularly in the middle of the week when they don't have many people around Craftsbury and you can still eat the really good locally sourced food at the dining hall. It also costs less to visit Craftsbury outside the weekend. Lodging can be 20% off the weekend rates or more. For more information about Craftsbury, visit craftsbury.com. Something that was surprising yet not was the men's race. So it was so fun to watch. It was so fun to watch. And it started the way I imagined this thing would go when they made it a 15K mass start with like rock hard, fast, fair conditions in Camor. It was crazy. I don't know if you noticed that. Like you're up against it. Like men just, man, oh man, these short mass starts. I remember that from my career, man. <laughs> like space is so limited. And when the pace is slow, like it was for the first couple laps of this thing, it was like, it was just like chaos in the field. Like at least that's what I, I just brought me back. I'm like, people that you don't normally see close to the front are all over the place. People are going back and forth. It was just like a mess. I was almost getting like nauseous watching and like, Oh man, I'm so glad I'm not there. People clipping your skis all the time. You're worried about your poles. Like it's just chaos. And then when Kruger at the halfway mark just said, sayonara bitches. And, and just if, I mean, we, we, we've sung the praises of Kruger for years, but the filming, the sun, the beautiful weather, how how he was doing it out there, the technique, it looked like he was racing at sea level. And this thing was easy for him, but the angles, the power, the efficiency, and also what I love, this is what I love about a guy like Kruger when he's on like this, but like Holund, Holund and like Martin Jones would soon be back in his day. He kind of changed men's skiing after the Nortagera. But, um, when he went at the halfway mark, it was to the line and he did not care. You know, you saw that like he got like five seconds, six seconds, and he knows how long those downhills are. He knows that's not enough, but he also knows he's not going to stop. And then that five seconds becomes 10, becomes 15, becomes 25. And then he's not losing anything in any terrain technically. And he smashes the field for his first world cup win of the season. And it, what a way to do it. And I was like on the edge of my seat. I, I, for someone that loves cross-country skiing and loves to see beautiful skiing, Kruger, man, it was, it was a phenomenal performance. And I, I just loved how that affected the race too. So I wanted to get your perspective because it, like, it really affected you. Look at the results sheet, but don't even look at the results. Like if you can watch the race and just see different players and how it all played out, it played out the way it did because Kruger with the halfway mark gave no shits and said like, I'm taking this. And then it, it changed the whole dynamic of the race and it made it just an, um, just a pleasure to watch. Yeah, totally. I mean, this was a race that didn't like unfold. It was a race that Kruger turned into the race that it was. And I, I mean, I will say I, I, again, I did not sort of have the like full continuous suspense that the television broadcast did. I just, got to watch him go by i think it was the beginning of the third lap where he had sort of just broken away come through the stadium and was heading back out again and the guy just looked so good he looked 
there was just so much energy going into his skiing and going in all the right directions. And he's just like flying up this hill where I was standing along the side of the trail in V2. And I think, you know, I was kind of like, okay, Kruger's got a gap. Like, obviously that's the Kruger getting a gap is a very different situation than uh, Vermeulen getting a gap where you're like, uh-huh. Okay, dude, good luck with that. I mean, Kruger, I just think in the men's field, you never know, right? Even Kruger, like, you're like, can he do this? Is he going to hold on? But Kruger went by and I was like, damn, that guy looks good. And then, you know, 10, 15 seconds later, the rest of the pack goes by and it's like they're in V1, like Amundsen, he's like bright red and they just are moving like the way they're moving. They look like children compared to Kruger, who looked like a fucking god out there. And, And you could just see like stick a fork in it. You can go take a nap, go to go to the mix zone, to the finish line in 20 minutes. And there just was no doubt the way that guy was skiing. And a performance like that, you just love to see it. You know, it's totally different style than than uh, Clybo Clabo winning a race in his sort of signature wait till the end and sprint past everyone in similarly brilliant fashion. It's just a totally different type of brilliance. And to get to watch something like that happen right in front of your eyes i don't it's it's like it's awesome that's what people i think watch sport for um it was really interesting to hear from like amundsen and vermoulin one of the great things about being here as opposed to like it being an olympics or even a tour de ski or a world championships is like it's so chill so all the athletes you know they do like one inner normally at the olympics like they're like 300 interviews that the scandinavian athletes do with scandinavian press and then they're just exhausted and frozen and they're like questioning english okay bye and here it's like it was sunny today everyone was having a great time like you know we were talking about climate change we were talking talked to vermoulin about dope doping and uh and like yeah um amundsen basically was like I kind of missed the move and then I thought about going, but I was tired, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that, that was it. And, and Vermeulen, I think the move came pretty much right after he was on the, off the front. And, and, you know, again, like Vermeulen basically was like, I was kind of hoping to make a move and make something happen. And then I looked back and there was no one with me and I felt like an idiot. So I think, you know, he knew that that was not the smartest thing to do, but I, you know, I think you can also respect that he's a guy that doesn't necessarily want to wait for things to come down for a sprint, but he definitely did not put himself in a position to go with Kruger. So I, you know, I think, and then the way that that race just like played out, it was kind of best of the rest and, you know, amazing day actually for, Vermoulin, his his first podium, uh, and also for Atomic, uh, Atomic is is Kruger and Vermoulin, and like they're you know relatively smaller ski company to like Fisher and and Solomon, and they had two dudes on the podium. I was like, the ski reps were walking away from the mix zone. I was like, you guys celebrating, and they're like, we're going to be drinking a lot of beers tonight. So, um, yeah, fun to see that get mixed up a little. Bit. No, for sure, and I think I think like. Yeah, it's cool to get that perspective because I saw that too. Like Amundsen looked like a god out there too, but like you could tell he was tired. I mean, it just, when Kruger's on form like this and skating and how he, especially at altitude, he's just a beast at altitude. I mean, that's why he's, like, he, he just can't be stopped. And it was a, it was, it was a like, absolutely stunning performance. Vermeulen, I'm, it, it's an interesting, right? Like what a season this guy's had. It, it's been like outstanding, like top tens all over the place. 
and then gets his first podium. And I love to see his emotion too. Like it meant so much to him as it should, as it should. Like when you saw Benny get his first podium earlier in the season or JC that we had on a couple days ago, like this is, uh, this is like, this is like so good. And, uh, it was, it was fun to see. And it's, it's, it is true though. I mean, it's, it's great. You asked him about like doping and stuff, not, not him personally, but uh, because I think he, you know, he's coming from Nordic combined. He's, He's uh, totally outside of the of of what what has happened, but I mean, God, it's been like 20, 30 years of disaster with Austrian cross country skiing, and, and it's really fun to see someone hopefully, and and I believe it, like uh, turn a new leaf, has a different, is coming totally from the outside and and performing well. He looks great skiing. I thought it was. It's also kind of fun to see like Frederik Mach, of course, like right in there for the podium. I was like cheering for him. I was like, I was actually kind of cheering for Mach. I'm like, come on, man, like get a podium. And then I'm, like you were second in the tour to ski and like there's guys like Berman who's just like had 573 like disc prolapses. Like it would be cool to see him try and finally get one. And uh, you know, he, he was kind of yo-yoing it at the tail end of that race, but fifth place for him. And then the two French guys like Lapierre Chapaz, like Chapaz, the what the hell? So good. It was a beautiful performance. And you, and you, you, you really wish you kind of hoping it's like, is this the time that France finally has an all arounder? Finally, they've had great sprinters, great distance skiers, but they've never been able to have like an all-arounder, like like a Klebo or an Alex Harvey or like or a Jesse. Like they can compete in sprints and distance. And I thought he looked so so good in this. And then Scott Patterson, speaking of performing at altitude, like Scott Patterson is is really like kind of frustrates me if I'm being totally perfectly frank. Like like Scott Patterson is an athlete that frustrates me because like you see how he's skiing today. You see how he's like dealing with the pack, dealing with the pack changes. He's looking good. He's making smart decisions and he he's rewarded with a top 10, which is that that's how good he can be. I mean, like he's been top 10 at the Olympics, like the guy's good. And then he'll go like a season and a half where like his technique looks like total shit. He's like getting blown off the back in like the mid forties at best. And like just dragging his carcass all over the place. And then you hear what he's done in the summer for some of his training. And he's doing like seven hour runs, like, and like all this crap. And you're like, what the hell is going on? And so it was really, really cool to see Scott Patterson get top 10. And also like the young Italian too, like Ilya Bartman ninth, like he's had a great season with some top tens this year. Uh, it, it, it had a lot of, it had a lot of, uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I, I guess what the only thing I will say is like, I know they're young and, and you know, they're going to get, I'm going to cut them slack, but like Gus has had such a great season and Zandon too. And this is like a course that I really would have thought that they would um, be able to play a little harder than they did. And they were back in like 22nd, 23rd, which is great results for young North Americans. But, but especially Gus has had such a great season and in this race, I thought like really could have suited his strengths. And then of course, like Benny, I don't know what the hell happened out there, but he's got sprints coming up, but it was a raunch fest. And, um, but that doesn't happen very often with Ben these days, but he's young, right? Like you kind of get reminded every once in a while that he's young. Same with Tony, you know, like Tony Sear had like just a, he shit the bed out there and, and, you know, he's also young and that's, that, that's going to happen to you. He's like, you know, a dis- really disappointing day when you're, when you're racing in Canada, you mean like Olivier Levillier, like a 15 K skate, he's light, he's a good skater. He's had two horrendous seasons and like drops out of this one, which is hard to see with the hometown crowd and then like Canada like I said I mean I'm sorry you just have to call it what it is like this was a nightmare outing this was a straight up nightmare outing like Zav who like I love Zav McKeever and and I you know 
I'm not saying it was a controversial decision. He's he's born and raised in Camor, so he skipped under 23s. There might not be another World Cup in Camor for like 20 years. We don't know, right? So he really wanted the chance to race at home in front of friends and family, and that's the decision he made. But it was like hard to see him have such a tough day. He'll be great in the sprints, though. I I really believe that. But um, you know, like there's just there's just nothing. There's no there, there's no like little positive I can take from the men or women's races on this distance race. I think it's really something that the Canadians have to put in their palm, throw it over their shoulder and be like, we refocus for tomorrow. Let's try this again and kind of forget this ever happened because this is not what you want to do in a home, home world cup. I mean, no one, no one performed. They get, they get three more chances though. So exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. We got some great sprinters and there was like some guys like Sam Henry. I'll give him a shout out. I mean, he was 30th. I mean, but like, in the field, when you look at the field and you look how the race played out, I'm sorry, like 30th, you're a senior. You're not on 23 athlete anymore. It's, it's not good enough. It, it just isn't. But it, for him, it was it was the probably the best uh, international uh, performance he's ever done. And like and also like Leo Grandbois, who is uh, who is in um, on period one for Canada too. He he ended up 46th. And like yeah, sure he was three minutes adrift. But like but the the fact of the matter is like he was looking not so bad. So it, it was. Uh, I'm, 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 but I'm really reaching deep into the chip bag here. And really I'm just coming out with crumbs and eating the crumbs instead of like nice, delicious chips. Like it was not something satisfying for the Canadians today. Okay. Hey, Norbert, good job, buddy. Look great today on TV. Devin Kershaw, how oh. are you? <laughs> oh, good. I, I miss you guys. I miss Cam where really was showing off today. You guys did a wonderful job, man. It looks so good on TV. Well, we're really happy how things showed up on TV. Uh, as always, there's a few things behind the scenes that, you know, people were working hard to fix. We have 350 volunteers and everybody's so motivated because it's our first World Cup in eight years. And uh, it's crazy. Time flies. So, since you raced here, right? So, yeah. was, uh, oh. well, thank you so much. To, you got to give everyone a big hug and you guys are doing a wonderful job. It looks so good. And I mean, man, I, I miss you guys and I miss the community. Camor has been I mean, it's home for me still. Like it feels uh, no like, kidding. yeah. So well, let us know when you come back. And, uh, yeah, this morning uh, when I was walking towards the finish line part of the stadium, there was a group of Norwegians that had a big banner of Claybo. Oh and, no way! Uh, yeah. along, along the fence, and so uh, I stopped and I looked at the banner and said, "Who's that?" And, and they looked at me like I had come from Mars. <laughs> oh right, it's it's a Norwegian skier, right? Oh, that's amazing. And, and it turned out to be Cable's parents. Oh, awesome. That's an amazing so, story. So then I gave his dad a big hug and said, we know who your son is. <laughs> exactly. We're happy yeah. he's here. So, oh, anyway, great. Good to see you, yeah. I'll give yeah, you thanks a lot, Norbert. Say hi to everybody. Keep up the yeah, good yeah, work. Yeah. looks so Thank good. You. Oh, we yeah. got Dan. Okay, we, well, I'm going to stay up for at least five right. minutes. Dan's a good buddy. Um, all right. Wow. We got the man himself the man of that do you want to go to bed i can do this myself (laughs) you can do this yourself but i'm going to say a quick what up to dan because he's like one of my good buddies and i don't get to see him all that often and and sing some praises dan i like like nat's gonna get the whole behind the scenes story for this right now i'm gonna go to bed but like oh my god you guys are legends for pulling this off by the way and i think it's really cool that like it's a great cool story that that a homegrown and local business essentially saved an international competition from like total disarray and destruction. So you're a hell of a man doing a hell of a job, Dan. Thank you. 
Yeah. Well, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Nat take this one. Is that cool, Dan? Sorry, buddy. I'm wrecked. Of course. Yeah. Big hugs. Let's catch up soon. Yeah. Maybe you could just uh, in- introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do and and what you just did over the past three days. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm Dan Roycroft. Uh, I founded Zone Four back uh, oh, almost twenty almost twenty five years ago. Um, and while I was still a skier, I was on the national team at the time and. Um, and uh, Zone 4, yeah, we, we, we try to make race timing software and we specialize in the North American ski market and try to get club, clubs, club, support clubs into timing races uh, at, the, at the top level in, in, in North America. And yeah, we got a, <laughs> we've done some high level races before. I mean, we, we've worked with Swiss timing before. And uh, so when I got a call uh, from Germany, from Lucien, just out of the blue on, it was Tuesday or Wednesday, he's like, so we don't have any time in gear. <laughs> it's like, and the world cup's on Friday. <laughs> it's like, Oh my goodness. So yeah, we, we started the wheels in motion. We we're just like, okay, let's get, let's get together, fly on an attack and how we can work together. And, you know, um, it was an amazing collaboration over the past three days. You know, everybody here at zone four, you know, Kyle Strama, the lead developer was, you know, putting in 12 hour days every day working on this interface. Everybody was putting together gear, and all the logistics to to bring our, our gear together and oh man to have it go off as well as it did today is unbelievable yeah so i mean i think for folks who are sort of reading they may have heard this stuff already but i the for for the person for for a person who's not a computer programmer um can you describe sort of what it was that you guys had to do to make this work over the past few days yeah we like to break timing into two parts there's timing and then there's broadcast and those are two very different things. Um, what Swiss timing does is so unique. I mean, if it doesn't happen live, it didn't happen. If you get it right five seconds later, it's too late. You've missed the moment. So like everything that they've built and everything they've done and everything their company is about is about live broadcast. And, um, you know, we focused on the North American timing market where you've got, you know, 600 people at a super J and Q or a national championships with 30 categories. It's just a very different type of requirements. And, and we have to make our stuff shippable because we rent our timing system to clubs. And, and, and so everything is super lightweight and small. And I mean, Swiss timing has 5,000 pounds of gear. We, last night, their truck actually arrived at like 10 o'clock at night. And I was operating the fork, got to run the forklift and we unloaded like those 19 pallets. I mean, it's just insane amounts of gear. Um, and our stuff is like one car. Um, so it's just totally different stuff. So for us, for us to be able to like help out Swiss timing, we had to make an interface from our timing stuff into their, their, their fist you know, World Cup level um, system. Um, and so, you know, they were the face of the broadcast. They were the ones that do all the magic of making it look good. And we're just simply feeding them the timing data. So that, that's an interface that took, took all the effort this week. And is that basically just like a programming person sitting in a room typing out code to make the two systems talk to each other? Kind of, but then it gets into actually testing. And I mean, yesterday we had like a bunch of us testing with like with different configurations of chips and testing things. And that's when they brought up, oh yeah, you know, when people pour across the line at the finish, you need to be able to designate a photo finish if it's under a certain threshold. And like, it's like, okay, great. We got to program that now. And it's like, just, you know, one thing after another, it's like, how do we make this? Cause you know, it's, it's, it just has to be right perfectly the first time you have no so, chance to make a correction. So, and are you guys, um, are you guys like, we're literally skiing around the, 
course for like the past couple days with chips on your legs trying to make sure that the stuff worked? We were running around the timing building uh, inside the timing office. This is, this is us like with chips on our hands. Like the the fifth the, the fifth uh, the fifth TDs were laughing at us because here we are like with chips all over us, like doing all this testing and just repeating over and over and over again until we felt really confident that what we built was going to work. Do um do you get uh reasonably well compensated for this uh three day sprint that you did? <laughs> I don't know. I think I think the pricing we charge here in Canada is is a bit of a, a drop in the bucket for. For Swiss timing, but uh, no, for us it was about Camworth hosting the world, you know, and like there was literally it was either going to be us help as best we can, or there's be no race. So I mean, we're just so happy that we could work with Swiss timing and and, and work with Fist, and they could make the accommodations on the schedule because the mass start was the only thing that we were going to be able to make work um, to actually have the day go off. Did anything not work? I mean. I have a saying in timing, there's always something going wrong. Your job is to try and figure out what that is and think of it ahead of time. So of course, of course, always something is going wrong. But you know, I mean, it was actually a really perfect day, which never happens, but like, we'll take it when it happens. Sweet. Okay. And, and I mean, you guys don't really, it's not like uh, there were no graphics that said like this world cup today brought to you by zone four. This was pretty much like all behind the scenes, huh? Totally. And I mean, timing is always supposed to be completely hidden, to- totally behind the scenes. Um, it- it's supposed to be just magic. And, and I mean, and we've tried to build that, to build that something the clubs can do themselves um, by building our own Go Chips hardware and to make software that supports the clubs doing it. Um, but we do know it takes support. And so we, we-, we try to be there just to help every uh, meet the races go off. Sweet. Well, it's a, it's a great sort of subplot of the World Cup here. Uh, and uh, appreciate you uh, sharing some of those details there. You know, probably they're like this half of our 12 listeners maybe will will care. But uh, for those that do care, it's, it, they'll probably get a kick out of it. So, um, yeah, really appreciate it, Dan. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Devin Kershaw Show. We'll be back soon.